Welcome to the Beltline Church of Christ podcast. We're so glad you found us. Please take a second and hit the subscribe button so that you can be notified of these weekly podcasts. Most of all, we hope this podcast will help you take your next step with Jesus. If you want to know more about us, you can visit us at www.beltlinechurchofchrist.org. Here's today's lesson. Take your Bibles. Let's go to Luke chapter 7. Uh, we're going to start and spend the majority of our time right here in Luke chapter 7 as we continue our series of lessons looking chronologically at the life of Jesus Christ, the greatest life that has ever lived. And so I just want to start by reading about this amazing faith of a centurion soldier. So let's begin verse 1, Luke chapter 7. It says, After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews, asking to come and heal his servants. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with him. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent him, friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Whenever Jesus marvels or is amazed, we should probably take notice of that. Would you agree with that? Whenever Jesus marvels, we should take notice. In fact, one article that I read about this section of Scripture said, when Jesus marvels, we must meditate. And I, I think that's right. I think that's really, really good. We need to look and we need to dwell on what caused Jesus to be amazed. Did you know that in Scripture there are only two instances where Jesus is amazed or marvels the first is what we read here in Luke chapter 7 with the centurion servant. The second is in Mark chapter 6 when Jesus marvels at the unbelief of his hometown. Isn't that interesting? There are two things that stop Jesus in his tracks. Two things that make Jesus say, whoa. Those who believe when there is no expectation that they should do so. That stops Jesus in his tracks. That makes him say, wow, that's, that's awesome. That causes him to marvel when people believe when it's not expected. But what also causes Jesus to say, whoa, is when those don't believe when they have every reason to believe. Isn't that interesting? It is certainly a gospel irony that the only person recorded in the gospel whose faith made Jesus marvel was this Roman soldier. It was an outsider. It amazed Jesus that a Gentile soldier of all people, a stranger to the covenant, a man with limited understanding of the scriptures at best, saw what a few of the covenant people saw when they looked at Jesus. He saw the Son of God. Jewish crowds flocked around Jesus. Jewish leaders lobbied and debated with him. But like Peter in a boat full of fish, the centurion recognized his divine holiness. And he recognized his own sinfulness. And he knew he was not worthy of Jesus' presence. 
One other thing that he recognized was Jesus' authority. And I think this is so important. Because when Jewish elders asked Jesus questions, they would ask questions like this. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? But this foreigner, this stranger, knew exactly who Jesus was. He knew the kind of authority that he had. And as we just finished the Sermon on the Mount last week, remember what it says at the end? They marveled at Jesus because he taught as one who had authority and not like one of the, uh, the scribes or Pharisees are leaders of the people. And so here, this foreigner gets it. He had lived in Capernaum where Jesus had been doing many of his wonders and signs. He knew that proximity was no factor for the king of kings. He knew that Jesus could speak out disease from any distance. Now this man whose faith made Jesus marvel, think about this. He was no disciple. He did no miracles. He planted no churches that we know of. He had no degree. He had no religious title. His spiritual resume was uh, unimpressive. The man with the greatest faith in Israel (laughs) was very unimpressive in all shapes and sizes and facets. Now, I want to say this. Is it possible that we can still make Jesus marvel today by our faith? I think it is. And all we have to do is the same thing uh, that this centurion did. If we, if we will have his kind of faith, uh, then we can make Jesus marvel as well. I don't know about you, but I want to do that. I want Jesus to look and say, wow, there's, there's a person of great faith. There's a woman of great faith. There's a man who, who understands. There's someone who gets it, right? And so if we're going to be those people that make Jesus marvel, we need the same four things that this centurion had. The first and foremost, this centurion simply knew who Jesus was. Do you know who he is? Not just know about him. Do you really know who he is? This is what caused the centurion's faith to be amazing to Jesus. It caused him to marvel. He knew who Jesus was. Number two, he knew what Jesus was able to do. In Hebrews, we talk about this this faith, and and part of that faith is, is understanding who Jesus is and what he's able to do, that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him, right? Third thing is this. He just humbly asked Jesus. I think humility is becoming a forgotten attribute and characteristic in our world today. You want to have a faith that makes Jesus marvel, you need to be humble. So he knew who Jesus was. He knew what Jesus was able to do. He humbly asked him. And number four, he simply trusted that he would receive what he needed Do you have those same things in your life? This guy really believed in Jesus. This this is the faith that still makes Jesus marvel. And so I want to ask you again, do you know who he is? Do you know what he can do? Are you willing to come to him in humility? And are you willing to trust him? This is the faith that Jesus desires from us. Is that a faith that you possess? Now, I want you to notice something else here about Jesus because I think this is very, very important, especially in the culture and society in which we currently live. I want you to notice the boundaries that Jesus is willing to cross in his interaction with this centurion soldier. Here's the first boundary that Jesus crossed. Jesus crossed, first and foremost, ethnic boundaries. Here's a Jewish teacher and a Gentile soldier. You see, to many people living in Israel in that day and time, this Gentile soldier was the enemy. This was the oppressor. This was the Roman occupier. And yet Jesus does not withhold his blessing because of his ethnicity. Jesus crosses the boundary. How are you doing with that? How are you doing in crossing those boundaries to get people to Jesus? 
Not only does Jesus cross ethnic boundaries, he crosses social boundaries, doesn't he, right? This soldier who has the means enough to contribute to a synagogue meets a prophet who ministers most among the poor, right? So here's a guy with wealth and Jesus who has nothing, who ministers among the poor, but Jesus doesn't allow that to say, sorry, you got all you need, I ain't helping you. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that at all. He crosses the boundary. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't let their differences keep him from the blessing of God. How are you doing with that one? Sometimes we're, we're a people that like to deal with people who are just like us. Uh, same, uh, same status, same class, same whatever. That, that's craziness. That's not the way of Jesus. Jesus is willing to cross boundaries. We must be willing to cross them too. Ethnic boundaries, social boundaries. And how about this one? I'm going to call it the crossing of the believing community boundaries. You say, what in the world is that? <laughs> Jesus is the one who brings the way of salvation, isn't he? But yet he ministers to this person who is interested in supporting religious ideals, but who has not yet made any kind of decision to follow Jesus that we know of. Jesus crosses the boundary. And so think about it. Jesus does not refuse this man because he's a different race. Jesus doesn't worry about class or social status. And Jesus doesn't argue for a type of separation that says, since the centurion's not one of us, I don't have to help him. He doesn't do those things. He crosses the boundaries. And so let's cross those boundaries. Don't play those games. Let's cross ethnic boundaries. Let's cross social boundaries. And let's cross any other boundary that's there so that we can get people where they need to be, and that is with Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior of the world. Now let me say one more thing here. I think the central lesson of this account is the nature of the centurion's faith. But I want you to notice, though, again, I want to come back to this idea of humility it was his humility that allowed others to honor him as a worthy man. But think about this. As humble as he was, standing before the presence of God's messenger, he understood God owed him nothing. He understood that. In his humility, he understood that God owed him nothing nothing. In fact, he didn't even feel worthy of being visited by Jesus. Yet, at the same time, he understood Jesus' authority to heal, and he understood Jesus' compassion. He believed that Jesus could heal by a simple, sovereign word, even from a distance, and he knew that Jesus cared enough to do, to do just that. Now, here's the point. I need you to get this today, and you're not going to like this, but you need to get this. God owes us nothing. You understand that? He owes us nothing. He doesn't owe us answered prayer. He doesn't owe us a nice life with a picket fence and three and a half kids and a cat in the yard or whatever the song says. He doesn't owe us anything. But here's the amazing thing about Jesus. He still extends his compassion to us. He doesn't owe us, but he gives us it. He gives us his compassion. He honors us with his grace. Not because we deserve it, but because that's who he is. Because he cares Oh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saves all of us. What a story. What an amazing story. I want to fast forward to the end of Luke 7, not the end, the middle of Luke 7. We haven't talked about John the Baptist in quite some time in our journey through the life of Jesus Christ. And yet here in Luke 7, John the Baptist comes back onto the scene. And so let's read what's going on, beginning in verse 18. It says this, The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? 
And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended because of me. And when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare my way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What an incredible section of Scripture. When Herod Antipas, who is the ruler of this area, when he chose a symbol to put on the back of his currency, this currency that, that rose up right before the time of Jesus' public ministry. Do you know what he chose to put on the back of the currency? I'm going to throw it on here. I don't know if you can see it or not. But you can see that little Galilean reed there if you look close. And so when we read, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? We may not fully grasp what Jesus is trying to say here, but they certainly did. You would see these Galilean reeds swaying in the breeze by the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this reed would represent beauty and the fertility of the area. And this is what Herod Antipas chose to represent himself. And so Jesus in this section of scripture asked some questions to his hearers. What did you go see? A reed swaying in the wind? What's he saying? The people to whom Jesus is speaking would have got this instantly. Were you looking for a new king? This is what Jesus, what did you go out to see? Were you looking for a, a new king? Another one like Herod Antipas with his reeds who lives up the road? Were you looking for someone wearing the latest fashion? He says, if so, you were looking in the wrong place. The royal palace is where those clothes are. So what were you looking for? Prophet? Yes, Jesus says. But more than a prophet. This was a special prophet. This was the preparer. I love that name. The preparer. This whole passage, this discussion between Jesus and John's message and Jesus' cryptic message to the crowd highlights one question and it is the question of all questions. Who does Jesus think he is? This is what this section of scripture is all about. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Is Jesus just a powerful prophet? Is, is he the new king going to replace Herod? Who is he? What is he? What's this all about? And John, sitting in prison, is clearly confused about the identity of Jesus. Or at least, he's having some significant doubts. Jesus wasn't doing what he expected. Don't you hate that? <laughs> Don't you hate it when God doesn't do what we expect? Don't you hate it when Jesus doesn't do things the way that we think they should be done? Don't you hate it when that happens? Well, that's what's going on with John. Because if Jesus is really the Messiah, why isn't he establishing the sort of messianic king that John was waiting for and that John expected? <laughs> and more than that, if you're really the one, why am I still in prison? Those are the thoughts, I believe, of John the Baptist in this moment. Why am I still imprisoned? 
What I love about this is Jesus doesn't come and answer John's questions directly, but he answers them still in an unmistakable way. Right there in front of his messengers, he heals all sorts of people, right? And he suggests that based on those healings, they draw their own conclusion. Now, he does give them a helpful shove as he quotes from the prophet Malachi. This is the kind of Messiah Jesus intends to be. Not some rival uh, to Herod Antipas, but, but a kingdom that's operating in a different way altogether. That's healing people and healing the world at every kind of level. That, that's the kind of king Jesus is. But if Jesus is a different sort of king, then John is a different sort of prophet. He isn't just one among many. He is the one spoken of by Malachi. Think about this. Let me put this on the board for you. I think I have it on there. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Here's what it says. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The messenger that we read about here in Malachi 3 clears the path for the master to come into the temple and cleanse it of all unholiness, which Jesus has already done once and he will do again as his life comes to an end on this earth. He is coming to bring God's judgment and mercy to bear on Israel as a whole. And this passage says something so important. This passage says that not only is the one who's coming the Messiah, but he is also God himself, right? Behold, I send my messenger, he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come into his temple. The least, the least, the least that we can do as we look at these is glorify and worship the King of kings and the God of all gods and Lord of all lords. And not only that, uh, this is why as we finish in verse 28 there, that he says the, the, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist, who was the greatest born up until that point. I think sometimes, though, we're like John, aren't we? Can I get something from you on that? So many today, we continue to judge Jesus by our own expectations. He can only operate within this little box that I've set up for him. And if something happens outside that box, it can't be of Jesus. It can't be of God. That's just, that's just so wrong in our thinking. Sometimes we're like John. We judge by our own expectations. And, and a lot of people, they look at the followers of Jesus and they do the same thing, right? They judge us by their expectations. Some criticize because we're too strict. Others criticize because we're too soft. Some criticize because we're too intellectual. Others because we're too down to earth. <laughs> Yet wisdom can still be glimpsed by those who have eyes to see. Following the Messiah who is different to what we imagined is always going to be demanded, demanding, but this is the only way to enter the kingdom of God. All right, sandwiched between these two stories, the great faith of the centurion and the doubt of John the Baptist, is this story of a widowed woman's son who dies tragically. Let's read verse 17, or verse 11 through verse 17. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. And then he came up and touched the bier and, said, and the bearers stood still. And he said to the young man, I say to you, Arise. 
And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding communities. Sandwiched in between these two instances of great faith and doubting faith is this story. In the first account, we saw this incredible faith of, John, uh, of, of the centurion. With John the Baptist, we see this faith mingled with doubt. So what kind of faith do we see here in the middle? The answer is none. Now, I'm not saying that she didn't have any faith. I'm just saying there's no indication that this woman had any faith whatsoever. Yet Jesus does the unimaginable for her. You say, well, what's the point? The point is this. It's never been about us. It's not about our great deeds. It's not even about our doubts. It has always been and it will always be about Jesus Christ and what he does for us. And we've got to come to grasp that and grip hold of that and hang on to that. It's always been about Jesus. Now, as you look at this story, can you, can you see the connections here that, that Jesus has to this woman? Think about it. Jesus himself, not many months from this moment, is about to be carried off his widowed mother's eldest son for burial outside of Jerusalem. Could it be that this is the reason he was so moved with compassion? Surely he had seen other funerals before. But as he starts to think about his own situation, as he starts to think about his own mother, and he sees this woman in all of her agony and, and, and misery, he says he's moved with compassion. I know we just read the story, but I want you to look again. Here's what I want you to try to do for me. I want you to try to put yourself in the crowd. I want you to try to put yourself in this crowd of people who are walking a few steps behind this casket. It's a hot day in Galilee. The sun sparkles on the tears which are streaming down everyone's face. Death is common enough and everyone knows what to do. The professional mourners are there making plenty of noise so that friends and relatives and particularly this poor mother can cry their heart out without embarrassment or making a scene all by themselves. People are coming alongside with spices to anoint the body and they are ready to wrap him up in the grave clothes to offset the smell of decomposition. Can you put yourself there? Put yourself there. You make your way from the family home through the streets to the town gate. A death in a small Middle Eastern community like this touches everyone. The family burial plot will be a little way outside the town, probably a small cave in the side of a hill where the husband and father had been buried some time before, and where now his bones, folded with care and devotion, lie stored in a bone box, leaving the main shelf clear for this young man's body. This is where this procession is heading. This is its destination. Then, quite suddenly, a stranger arrives. 
a man who's leading his own group of followers, and he seems familiar. I mean, Upper Galilee is not a large place, and perhaps he grew up in a neighboring village. He's looking at this widowed and now double-bereaved mother, and something inside him seems to be stirring. He comes up and says to her something. He whispers something to her, and then to everyone's surprise and horror, he touches the casket. Then the biggest shock of all, he's telling this young man to get up, and, and he is. <laughs> he is getting up. And the whole funeral procession goes wild with astonishment, with delight, and with disbelief. And, and remember, you're there. You've put yourself there. You don't know what to do. I mean, who do you look at? Do you look at the no longer dead boy? Do you look at his amazed and ecstatic mother? Or do you look at this stranger who has done what the old prophets like Elijah and Elisha used to do? Uh, you don't know where to look. But the next thing that happens is you find yourself shouting with the people, God has visited his people. God has visited his people. And the people are you are shouting and dancing and rejoicing. God has visited his people. What does that mean? Did God pay us a social visit? Is that what he, no, 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 you got to get this. In the biblical sense, it means God has come near. They didn't know how right they were in saying this. That God had come near. He had come near to rescue, came near to save. It means this is the time we have been waiting for. This is the time we've been waiting for. When God himself comes into his creation. Mm. What a story. I want you to do one more thing for me before we quit. <clears throat> I want you to go through this scene one more time with me. But this time... Instead of it being a funeral procession in this small first century Galilean town, I want you to make it the moment that you dread most coming up in your life in the next week, the next month, or the next year. Go through it again, but rather than this funeral, think about your situation. Maybe you have a kid going to college. Maybe you have to make a decision about what you're going to do with the rest of your life. Maybe you're going to have to move. Maybe there's a new job, something like that. Maybe uh, there's something that you've always been afraid of that's there. A, a sudden accident or an illness, a tragedy or a scandal. Whatever that is for you, and you know what it is. I don't even have, uh, when I said that thing that you most fear, that thing that you most are going to have to face, you already knew what it was. Come into the middle of this scene again, if you can, in prayer. And feel the sorrow and the frustration and the bitterness and the anger of that thing. Whatever it is that you have to face in your life. Now. Now just watch. As Jesus makes his way to you. Just watch. As he joins you in the middle of it. Let him approach. Let him let him speak. Let him touch. Let him command. Now, please understand, he may not say what you expect. He may not do what you want. But, when his presence comes to be with you, that's what you need most. And I'll say this, once you recognize that he's in the middle of it with you, whatever it is, 
that you're going to have to deal with, you will come through it. Remember our questions from a few weeks ago? Does Jesus know about your struggle? Yes. Is he, is he powerless to help you in your struggle? No. Does he have an incredible plan for your life? Yes. Then listen, if he is with you, you will be able to come through it. You see, these stories, these true stories in Luke chapter 7, the centurion, this widow, do you see what it's done here? They've taken that Sermon on the Mount, that kingdom manifesto, and they show us what life, what inner righteousness that Jesus was talking about looks like on the ground, what it looks like in real life. God's love is going out in new and unexpected healing generosity, and they prepare us for the questions that John the Baptist asked. Who is this guy? Are you the one or not? And the answer for them is the same as it was for John. He is the one who's come near. The answer for us is he's the one who's come near. He's the one who is saving us and rescuing us. He's the one we've been waiting for. Is he the one you've been waiting for? Is he the one you've been waiting for? Hmm. What an incredible section of scripture. And I hope that it gives you some courage. I hope that it gives you some hope as you face whatever comes to recognize the one we've been waiting for is walking with me. I don't face anything that I face alone. I don't face any of it by myself. He walks with me. He is right here with me. What a God we serve. And listen, if you haven't given your life to him yet, what in the world are you waiting for? A God who loves you this much deserves your dedication, your love, your everything. And so if you've never given your life to Jesus, I pray today's the day that you come believing who he is, uh, confessing him as Lord in Christ, repenting of your sins, getting baptized for the remission of those sins, and starting your walk with God. It's not the end, it's only the beginning. And if you're here today and those things that you're going to have to face, just, or maybe you're facing right now, just seem overwhelming, then let us pray with you. Let us pray for you. Let us point you uh, to the one who walks with us no matter what it is that we're facing. Thanks again for listening. If you are in North Alabama, we would love to have you visit and worship with us. Also, if this lesson blessed you today, don't forget to hit the share button and share this message with someone else. Hope you will join us again next week. As we close, here is our prayer for you. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Have a great week.